Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Beautiful topic this morning. As we're going to look at the first two verses, he deals with the elderly, men and women. But then as we get into verse 3 through verse 16 this morning, he speaks about the responsibility of taking care of the widows. It was something that was very biblical. And so we want to call our study this morning, we are to honor the widows. Now remember that Paul looked at young Timothy. Young pastor, we estimated he's at least 30 years old. Paul looked at him as a spiritual son in the Lord. And so in writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1 through 6, this first book, Paul gives instructions how to govern the church. Back in chapter 3, he spoke about the leadership and such, and the responsibilities later uh, concerning a shepherd, Timothy himself. And now he comes to this place in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and he speaks about the elderly. How we must have respect for them. And we see it in today's society. A lot of times that respect is not there anymore. And here we are, a nation that calls ourselves Christian. And if we're truly a Christian, truly born again of the Holy Spirit, number one, we have this love for Christ. And if we have this love for Christ, Jesus said, number one, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, everything that's within thee, love God. Secondly now, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in the process, he doesn't even have to mention. If you're to love God first and then love your neighbor as yourself, what about mom and dad? What about grandma and grandpa? We should have legitimate concerns for them. And we should reach out to them. And it's so important. And so Paul begins here, and he deals with the true widows. And then he, obviously, there was fake widows. There were those that were taking advantage of, basically, the programs, the food, the money, whatever was available for the widows. But then Paul says, listen, if if you have grandchildren, you have uh, children and grandchildren, let them take care of you. And I believe so. But if not, then the church steps in, and the church is to take care of them. We're going to see that in Acts chapter 6. But let's begin here, 1 Timothy chapter uh, 5, how to treat church members, these two verses. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as your brothers. Goes into verse 2 now. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. So he begins here, and he says in verse 1, do not rebuke them. Imagine a a young man or a young lady, and, and they're serving the Lord, and they've got more time, you know, in Christ, but yet there's elderly that are just coming to the Lord. And so it's never easy for somebody that's older, uh, you know, to take correction or to take instruction or even encouragement from a younger. But we're talking about in the church, in the body of Christ. And so Paul says, do not rebuke an older man. Do not chide him. Do not chasten him. Do not strike at him, this mature man, even if he's not a Christian. Show respect. 
And that's one of the things that we grew up with as youngsters. We were always taught to respect, number one, our parents, then to respect grandma and grandpa. And honestly, and maybe some of you here this morning, if your children call you by your first name, you need to rebuke them. They need to call you mom. They need to call you dad. You don't say George. I never called my dad Bob. He would have smacked me. You don't call your grandpa. My grandpa was Ray. I didn't call him Ray. Hey, Ray, come on over, man. No, it's your grandpa. And that shows a sign of respect and humility. Now, even if they're saved or not saved, we should be praying for them. Then Paul says, but exhort the older ones as if they were your own dads. I like that. Show them respect and humility. If they don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they don't have that personal relationship, what a beautiful place to start. Share with them. Encourage them. Then the younger men. Treat uh, the younger men as brothers in the Lord. Treat them as you would treat your own family member. Sometimes in our salvation, you could be the younger in age, but older in the Lord. Of those you minister to could be your elders. Man, share Christ with them. Encourage them. And he goes to the same perspective in verse 2. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. And so you older women in Christ. Treat the older women physically as you would treat your mother, as you would treat your younger women with all purity. The word purity here, with cleanness. And he's speaking about cleanness in the Lord, as you would treat your own sisters. It's a common sense here to have respect and humility uh, towards those that are older. I, I really believe it's a dying art. It's something that was part of society for so many years. I cringe when I hear in the news of an 82-year-old man, 83-year-old woman, and she's beaten up to, or he's beaten up, and, you know, taken advantage. The purse was stolen. Their social security check, after the cash that was taken. I mean, you hear these stories. They usually happen in the big metropolitan area, but it should not be. Where's the respect? And the concern. My dad was raised in, in L.A. And then he was, you know, in the military. He was a sergeant. And he knew how to defend himself. But when he got older, it was not easy. But even in the days, my dad carried a cane. Don't mess with him because he'll take the first shot. Where's the respect? Where's the respect? And honestly, if we're Christian. And you see elderly, and it's not your mom, it's not your dad, not your grandma, not your grandpa. Respect. You know, we remember the story about, you know, the, the Boy Scout walking the old lady across the road. That's reality. We should have concern and care. And so Paul deals with the elderly in the first two verses. But then he gets into the widows. Oh, he spent some time here. He spent some time and so God says, listen to this, we are to honor the widows. It's interesting, as we're going to get into the text now, you're going to find some that were, you know, taking advantage. Well, I'm a widow, and let's see what I can get. And it should not be. And so he begins here in verse 3, honor widows who are really widows. The word is truly widows. 
value them. That's the word to honor them. Revere them. Love them. When we speak about a widow in, in the Hebrews, they were spoken of as the bereaved ones. I want you to listen to this verse. Because in the Old Testament, you were to take care of the widows. That was part of the law. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 14, in verse 29, this is what it reads. Moses writes, so that the Levites, these, this was the priesthood, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the aliens and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. We were to reach out to those in need. Notice that the Levites had no inheritance. And so people were to take care of the Levites, the priesthood, in the time of the Old Testament. But then he says the aliens, the fatherless, the widows, you take care of them. But I like what it says in Deuteronomy. If you take care of them, then God's going to bless you. God's going to encourage your heart. Now, that was Old Testament. So let's go to the New Testament. I want you to turn to this passage and, and go with me to the book of Acts, and let's go to chapter 6. And we want to pick up in verse 1 uh, through 7. Now, let me just set this up. Back in Acts chapter 2, there was 120 that were in the upper room. They were waiting for the promise of the prophecy spoken in the book of Joel. That the Holy Spirit would come and fall upon them. Jesus has already ascended into heaven. Ten days later, Pentecost falls. The Holy Spirit fell upon the early church. The 120 were never the same. Peter, who had previously denied the Lord three times, he steps out by faith in his first sermon, 3,000 souls come to saving grace. The church is on the move. Scholars estimate that from the book of Acts chapter 2 until right here, because there's a tremendous need now, and we come to Acts chapter 6, some said that the church has already grown anywhere between 10,000, 15,000, or even 20,000. But let's get the, the low number. If, if the church has grown 10,000, imagine 12 men that are in charge, these 12 apostles that are in charge of the needs of the body of Christ. What a tremendous, uh, you know, opportunity, but also a task. And so they have to determine, we need some more help. This is where the deacons come in to the picture. And so look at Acts chapter 6, look at verse 1 with me now. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying... There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. These are the Greeks. Because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Imagine now the early church. You got Jew and Gentile. Jews and Greeks coming together to saving grace. God is marrying them together. There's one body of Christ. But then all of a sudden the Greeks say, Hey, you guys are taking care of the Hebrew widows. What about ours? And rightfully so. They're in Jerusalem. The first need is going to be towards the Hebrews. And so they complain. 
In verse 2 it says, then the twelve, listen to this, they summoned the multitude of the disciples and they said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and to serve tables. Now, they weren't being boastful here, but they were being very truthful. In other words, twelve men were taking care of the church. They were teaching them the word of God. They were laying hands on the sick. They were praying and they were setting up the administration and such. Well, Somebody was neglecting the work of the servant. And so we go to verse 3 now. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men. Seven men. And he gives the qualifications of these seven men. I, I like what the 12 did. They went out there and they said, okay, you guys know everybody that's with you. Look among you now. Look into the spirituality. Find seven men, and he says, of good reputation, men that are full of the Holy Spirit, men that are full of wisdom, of whom we may appoint over this business. But we, now again, they're not boasting. Look at verse 4. We, speaking of the twelve, will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The pastor's job was to teach the body of Christ. You know, I thank the Lord uh, for the servants that he raises up here in, in this ministry. I thank the Lord for the work that Jeff does and, and the work that Jay does. And, and, I mean, it gives me that time to study, to pray. And it's not that they don't study and pray, but they take care of the tasks of the ministry. Imagine if the church is 10,000 at this time. So they're not boasting here. But somebody had to do the menial task. Just as you're here this morning, somebody came last night, cleaned up the church, vacuumed, gets everything ready. That's the servant's job. Not that we're not servants, but they take on these tasks. And so the complaint continues. In verse 5, And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen. A man full of faith. Now, we see that they have to have good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, and now another qualification, full of faith. And again, and the Holy Spirit. And they chose out Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timion, uh, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a, a proselyte from Antioch. These are seven men that the Holy Spirit showed the people. And, you know, basically, we look and we see, okay, Lord, who, who do you want to do these services? Who do you want to do this task? And it's amazing how the body of Christ, everybody has gifts. Beautiful. I mean, you don't want to hear me up here with a guitar or a piano or, or the congas. That's not me. That's not my calling. And so God gives people. And it's a, just a beautiful part there. Now, Verse 6, he goes on. He says, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. The laying on of hands. The anointing with oil. The time of prayer. This goes back to the Old Testament. We're just finishing up in 2 Samuel. And we went through the ministry of King Saul. We went through the ministry of King David. And these men were anointed. They were laid hands upon. They would take a flask of oil, usually a ram's horn, and they would pour it over the head. 
You go back to Psalm 133, it tells you that, you know, uh, they poured the oil upon Aaron and it ran through his head, it ran through his beard, and it ran through, saturated through his whole body, his clothing and such. You know, when we lay hands on somebody, when we pray for somebody, when we anoint somebody, we put a dab of oil. Imagine, you know, some 30 weight just going all the way down. I mean, you know you're anointed by God, right? And so take these seven men now, these men of good reputation, these men full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith. Pray for them now. God used them in a mighty way. We've anointed people here. We've laid hands on people for the work of the ministry. And look at the results now. In verse 7, then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly there in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priesthood were obedient uh, to the faith. The testimony of how you react as a Christian. The testimony of your walk with God. The testimony of these twelve. The testimony of the seven. It ministered to the priesthood. And many of them were coming to saving grace by faith. Those of you that are saved, those of you that are born again of the Holy Spirit, I want you to, in your own mind right now, think of that one that ministered to you. That one person that was sharing with you. Maybe there were several, but what did you see in them? You saw their faith. You saw their compassion, their love. You saw the, the ministry of God. In fact, I remember when my friend was sharing with me, inside I would say, I want what he has. I don't have what he has. And we try to take care of that void in our own hearts with drugs and alcohol and sexual perversion, and it's empty. The only way to fill a broken heart or a heart that has a hole in it is to fill it with God's love. And so can you imagine as people began to just open up to the Word of God because of the example of the church, the body of Christ. Now let's go back to our text. We're continuing to honor the widows. Look at verse 4. But if any widow, and here's where Paul begins to make the, the difference. If any widow has children or grandchildren. You have a King James that says nephews, and it's not a good translation. If any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay, I like this word, their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. And so Paul makes it very clear here in the beginning of verse 4. If a widow has her own kids still, living uh, with her or not, let it be children or grandchildren. They're still alive, obviously. Let these show the widow, piety. The best translation for piety here, let them show respect towards her. And in that process of respect, it covers a multitude. Take care of their needs. House them if necessary. Feed them. Clothe them. I mean, it just, that's the part of respect. And notice that it says to repay, by repaying mom and dad, because this is good and acceptable before God. Listen to the Greek. This is honest and agreeable before God. Oh, God appreciates when you take the initiative to take care of the elderly. God 
appreciates when you take care of mom and dad. That's the beauty here. The word to repay and the King James, Arden and Gingrich and their, their Greek scholars, listen to what they say about this word. Make a return to those that have raised you up. I like that. What a time to pay back. What a time that, you know, now it's your turn. You know, when we're kids, you don't care. You're 18, you're 15. You just want to do. But now you get married. You've got some school under you. You've got some sense now. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you're 30 years old. And you start looking at mom and dad in a whole different perspective. And you want to care for them. You know, one of the hardest things was for me and Mary. We were here already in the ministry. We're already here in New Mexico. Both of our families live back in Southern California. In fact, our parents live two and a half blocks from each other. And when Mary's dad got sick, not to be there was very difficult. And she would go and stay and then come back. And then when my dad got sick, the hardship. I praise the Lord that the opportunities were given through the leadership here. I would fly out as much as possible. But imagine if you just can't do that. And so to take care of them, make a return to those who raised you up. And it's such a beautiful picture. When you see certain cultures, again, church, I'm reminding you, it's a dying art. But I love when you see cultures and they're still taking care of mom and dad. And in some cases, mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. And yeah, it's not easy. It's hard. It's tough. And sometimes for you, the spouse, that that's not your immediate parent. And yet you're Christian. And so God calls you to have that love and that compassion and that grace. And here's the bottom line. God is going to bless you. God is going to bless you. Look at verse 5. We continue. Now, she who is really a widow. And so, again, there were those fakes. There were those false ones or the ones taking advantage of, of the programs. Now, she who is really or truly a widow and she is left alone. She's trusting in God and continues now in supplication and prayer day and night. These are the prayer warriors in the church in the body of Christ. Here is the second time that Paul reminds Timothy and the church at Ephesus, those who are indeed real and true widows. He mentioned that back in verse 3. This shows us that there were those who lied and took advantage of the help toward the widows. They were the fakes out there, the charlatans. I mean, you see them even still today. Notice that Paul says to the true widow that has been left alone, there's no help like the widow that we read about in verse 4, who had her grandchildren, who had her kids. Those widows now who have been trusting God, Paul says, let these continue in supplication and in prayer. The Greek says, let them continue, let them abide, let them stay in that place of prayer request. That's supplications. And then the word prayer, let them stay in that place of worship to the Lord. And I like this phrase, night and day, night and day. What a beautiful picture. Let these remain as God has called them uh, to be part of the prayer ministry. 
Those of you that know the background, the background of Calvary Chapel, back in 1965, Pastor Chuck took over a small fellowship called Calvary Chapel, about 25 people. And from there, it developed the Calvary Chapels that are throughout the United States now and abroad. And Chuck, being in ministry prior to Calvary Chapel, basically, he's been in ministry over 60-plus years. But through the years, the experience that he has learned and saw in the widows in his church. On many of these, he's buried, officiated in their funerals and such. And Chuck himself is 82 years old. And he says, man, he would tell us in conference, God sustains this ministry because of his grace, his love, and his mercy. But God hears the prayers of the saints. He knew personally many of these old women, these widows, that were praying for Chuck, that were praying for Kay, that were praying for the ministry of Calvary Chapel. Now here we are in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Uh, we've been here 26 years. Mary and I and the kids, and, and in a lower scale, I understand what Chuck is saying. We have those in our fellowship and those that are not even here anymore but have moved on to other states and some even abroad that are praying for this church, praying for this pastor. And I tell you, I appreciate it so much. And the beauty of having the Internet, uh, most of these we can contact uh, through email, and we just tell them, hey, pray for us. In fact, there's a dear, sweet lady named Sylvia, and she just loves our ministry, and uh, she is in Gilo, uh, Israel. I can email her. And, man, she just begins to pray. I remember when my back had gone out, and uh, actually I was out of the pulpit for about four Sundays, and then when I finally got back, uh, some of you were here. I had to bring the pulpit down. I couldn't even come up the two steps, and, I mean, my back was out. And I had been asking for prayer everywhere, everybody. Well, when I asked Sylvia, she sends me a prayer cloth just as those that Paul would send out. And she meant it by faith. And man, I tell you, I appreciate that kind of prayer. And that's what sustains this church. And so Paul's speaking about the widows here that God has sustained. And in return, they have become the prayer warriors of the church. Some of you here this morning. Don't tell me that you don't have a ministry yet. Because I will tell you, get into the ministry of prayer. God calls us to pray. God gifts us to pray. And so that we can intercede, supplication, prayer, which is worship. And this is what Paul is speaking about here. Those prayer requests. Look at verse 6. Now let's go back to our text. He says, but she who lives in pleasure. Now these are widows that are living in pleasure. You see, sin has no barrier. You think, oh man, by the time I get to be old, I'm in my 70s, my 80s, sin is going to diminish. No, not necessarily. Sin is still there until we go home to be with the Lord. Notice, but she who lives in pleasure... The sinful widow, if you may, is dead while she lives. The word pleasure, these widows that lived a life of want. 
a life of want, instead of living a life for God. There were those widows who only lived for the worldly pleasures, the wants of the world. I want, I need, I better get, I will pursue until I get it, whatever it may be. Paul said these types of widows are already, and listen to the terminology, basically spiritually dead while they physically live here on this earth. Now, just because they're old does not mean that they don't desire the things of the world. You say, well, when I'm a youngster, I'm a teen, I'm tempted, and, you know, it's so hard, and now I finally get through school, or I finally get up in age, and I find the young man or the young woman, and, you know, I get to get married, and things are going to change. Oh, the lust of sin is still there. That's why we have to guard the heart. I want you to turn to a passage. Go with me to 1 John, the epistle. Towards the end of the Bible, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Just because somebody reaches, you know, the age of elderly, you say, well, they, they're not going to sin anymore. My mom and dad, for years, uh, they were part of the convalescent ministry back in Calvary Chapel there in Southern California. And my dad just loved it. And so after their service at the church, then him and my mom would go uh, to a couple of convalescent homes. And my dad just loved it. My brother used to tease my dad. Dad, you're going to minister to these old people? You need to be in that place because you're up in age. But my dad told this story about this 85-year-old man. He would come every Sunday. And he would come up in a wheelchair. In fact, the nurses would bring him up. And here he was kind of slumped over. It looked like he was dead to the world. And in your mind, you think, this guy can't possibly sin. Well, if a nurse got too close to him, well, he woke up and he would lift up her dress. Now, you 85 years old. That sin nature is still there. Listen to what John writes here. 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 15. Do not love the world, do not love the world, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I'm going to reread this for you. Because the word that John uses for love is the word agapeo, the word agape. The word agape is divine love. We can only achieve or receive agape love through Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The word love there is agape. And so listen to how John writes this now. Do not agape the world. Do not agape the world or the things in the world. If anyone agapes the world, the agape of the Father is not in him. This is God's love. It's not in you if you're seeking the things of the world. This is sin in the old or the young. It doesn't matter. The Bible says that Satan is no respecter of persons. I don't know how old Hugh Hefner is, but he's still, you know, into the bunnies. Come on. The man is old. Unless he repents, he's going to die in his sins. Look at verse 16 and 17 now. For all that is in the world, listen to this now. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 
The Greek is telling us the word uh, lust here is the desires of the carnal flesh. The desires of the carnal eyes. The pride of life. God says that pride comes before a fall. Read that in Proverbs 16, 18. And so the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Now, there's good pride. We have pride in our heritage. We can have pride in our school. We can have pride in our church. But this pride that leads to sin, this pride that takes you away from God, this pride that brings you to the place of, you know, the sins of the flesh, the sins of the eyes, the sins uh, that lead us away from God. And so then he goes into verse 17. And the world is passing away. It's interesting that the people of the world try to grab all the gusto. But that's what we're told. That's the cliche. Get all you can. Get all the pleasure while you can. And the world is passing away. He says, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. You see, sometimes we press so much for the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the world, for the desires of uh, the mundane things that are obviously sin nature. And they're all going to pass away. I want you to mark this down and do a study on it tonight. In the book of Revelation in chapter 21, John is coming to the conclusion. Remember, John has seen it all. God has showed him everything there in the island of Patmos. And in Revelation 21, John writes, I saw a new earth. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And then John said, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. You see, the things that we, well, let's keep the world. Man, we got to keep the world. And I'm, I'm all for the, you know, ecology out there. Come on. I mean, I believe we need to take care of things. But bottom line, according to the book of Revelation, a, a new heaven is coming, a new earth is coming, a new Jerusalem, because the rest is going to pass away. Back in Calvary Chapel, West Covina, when we first come to Saving Grace, there was a lot of cliches that were running around, and, and that we used to speak about the rapture of the church and stuff. And, and then people used to share about, you know, well, you know, I, I need to buy another car. Ah, brother, don't buy a car. It's going to burn up anyway. Well, we need to move from this apartment to another. Nah, don't even move from that apartment. It's going to burn up anyway. Man, I need to change up. No, it's going to. And that was a cliche. And so we used to love to go around. And they would say, you know, I really need a hamburger. No, no, that's going to burn away. And so everything was going to burn away. And we would refer back to Revelation chapter 21. And here we are 30 plus years later, and everything's still here, but it is going to burn away, right? And so we go for everything. But yet, what about the spiritual things? Let's go back to our text now. Look at verse 7. And these things, Timothy, command that they may be blameless. So he's still talking about the widows. Timothy, give these instructions, these teachings, to the church there at Ephesus, that the widows you help will not be rebuked. I was thinking of the Judaizers, one of the, uh, the ones that would undermine the teachings of Paul. They were coming in and undermining, and they would be so quick, hey, don't, don't worry about the widows. 
you know, just take care of the meat products and the dairy products and take care of the Sabbath worship and, you know, make sure your children are, are the boys are circumcised at the, before the age of eight days. And so they would get very staunch. And yet Paul here was saying, don't rebuke the elderly. Don't rebuke the widows. Take care of them. And again, getting back to last week's teaching, he's telling Timothy here, hey, go teach them. Give them instructions. Command them. Give sound doctrine, healthy teaching. Look at verse 8 now. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse. If you have a King James, worse than an infidel, which basically is an unbeliever. And so Paul gets a little harsh here. If anybody does not take care of their own widow of the house, especially, as we've already mentioned, she has kids or grandkids, these type have denied, listen, the word to deny, you've refused your God-given faith, and you have become worse or more evil than an infidel, an unbeliever, a non-Christian, a faithless one, downright heathen. That's what Paul's saying. Now, I want you to think about it. We call ourselves Christian. We call ourselves believers in Christ. And then we don't love our family members. Or we love not the brothers and the sisters in Christ. The importance of loving your neighbor. And if Jesus says, love the Lord thy God, and then love your neighbor, you don't think in between there? We're to love mom and dad, grandma and grandpa. Wow, they're already old, you know. We should have a concern and a compassion for them. On Wednesday, we were teaching out of Matthew chapter 5. We went to that passage. Jesus said, listen to these words, love your enemies. Love those who curse you. Love those who hate you. And pray for those who despitefully use you. The word despitefully use you, those that accuse you. Pray for those who persecute you. Now I want you to think about that. Rome was killing Christians. And you're to pray for them? History tells us that when Christians were dying in the arenas there in Rome, many different ways, we know the lions were eating them and such, Gladiators would come in and kill them off. But that many that were in attendance would see the faith of these Christians. And many of them in the audiences would turn to the living God. Many times, you know, our testimony, our manner of life can so easily lead others to Christ. So here, love your enemies. Love your, those that hate you. I mean, the list goes on. So how much more? You call yourself Christian. I call myself Christian. The church at Ephesus called themselves Christian. How much more the elderly? And then how much more your own widows? Your mom or dad or grandma and grandpa? Imagine that. Now look at verse 9. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number the word number is crucial here we'll get back to it and not unless she has been the wife of one man a widow who is put on the list that's the word number here for the support must be a woman who is at least 60 years old 
and was faithful to her husband. Obviously, he's passed away now. Again, she has no kids, no grandkids. Then let the church take care of her. Let the church provide for her. But listen to this word that he uses in verse 9. Older widows were to be taken into the number. The Greek rendition here, they were to be placed, they were to be enrolled in a widow's group. So they actually had a widow's group. And these women were 60 plus years old. These women had, you know, no grandchildren or no great-grandchildren and no children of their own. Nobody to care for them. They would place them in that group. And the church would take care of them. The body of Christ. That's a beautiful picture here. Now, look at verse 10. And here's the testimony of these type of widows. Well reported for good works. So her testimony spoke of itself. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints, the saints' feet, that is, if she has relived the afflicted, relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. It almost takes us back to Acts chapter 6. And we saw the qualifications, you know, of the deacons. Here's the qualifications of a widow, of one that would need help now. And so Paul says in verse 10, these widows would have such a great testimony, the report would be of their good works, their honest deeds. Further testimony, she raised her own kids. She took in strangers. That speaks of her gift of hospitality. She washed the feet of the saints. Now, on your own, if you're taking notes, Mark John chapter 13, the gospel. We know that Jesus is getting ready for the Last Supper. He's going to break bread with his disciples. But nobody at the house had washed anybody's feet. Generally, you would come in at the dusty roads and such. They wore sandals. And it was very customary, the servant of the house would take off your sandals, wash your feet in a basin, and then anoint your feet. Nobody had done that. The Bible says that Jesus took off his outer garment, and he took on a towel, the badge of a servant, and he tied himself in, and he washed feet. This widow was one of those that served by washing the feet of the servants. Now, what happens during the time of Passover week during the time of Holy Week, there are churches that take this John chapter 13 literal and they'll have foot washing services. Jesus never said to do that. But he said, this is an example. Go wash feet somewhere. Go clean the carpets at church. Go wash the windows at church. Go over to that elderly home and, and you know, clean her house. Clean up the yard. This is washing feet, serving others. She helped those who suffered. She took care of the afflicted. The NIV says she was devoted to all kinds of deeds. Basically, she was a true servant. Look at verse 11. But refuse. Now, Paul goes into the younger widows. But refuse uh, the younger widows for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ... They desire to marry. Now, be careful when you study the Pauline epistles. 
There are those that say that Paul was against marriage. There are those that say that Paul was a chauvinist. And yet, if you look at the ministry of Paul, he had such a, a care and a compassion. Now, Paul, being in the Sanhedrin, Paul being a Pharisee, he had to have been married. We don't have history, but we hear tidbits. And we're told that Paul's wife probably died or she couldn't handle the ministry because Paul left Phariseeism. Paul left the Sanhedrin and he was financially set. And now he's going from town to town, to town that is, and he's making tents for a living. He's, going, he's reverting back to his childhood. And some think that maybe she left. But Paul was not against marriage. But Paul says here, the younger widow. Some man catches her, her eyes. And they can forsake the Lord and follow marriage. These are Paul's words of encouragement. Again, Paul's not saying don't get married. But Paul says you're serving the Lord. Then continue to serve him. On your own, study 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, bottom line, when two people come together and they desire to get married, maybe one's been divorced, maybe one is widowed, the key is that you have to follow the Lord. Has God spoken to you clearly to marry this person? Has that person been spoken to clearly? You know, the first thing you get from young people, well, how do you know you guys are called to get married? Because we love each other. Well, that's, that's a good start. But man, has God shown you? And I ask them point by, has God shown you? Has God shown you that this is the man, this is the woman that you're going to spend eternity with? I mean, it's important, church. And this is what Paul's speaking about now. Look at verse 12. Having condemnation, the word is judgment, because they have cast off their first faith. And so Paul's speaking about the younger widows. They'll bring judgment upon themselves because they have broken their first promise, which was their faith in Christ. Maybe a guy comes by at the time, and he has a nice chariot. He has a, a good job, and, you know, she, he says, hey, I need somebody. Would you marry me? Well, does he serve the Lord like you're serving the Lord? Does he love the Lord like you love the Lord? It's very important here. Now, go back up to the top of verse 12. Having condemnation or judgment because they have cast off their first faith. The word first faith that is used here. It's a classical Greek. It means to make a pledge. It means to make an oath. It means to make a promise to God. You see, the day you received Christ, you raised your hand or you opened your heart and you made a promise to God, Lord, come into my life. Lord, forgive me. God holds us to that promise. Now, there is a beautiful verse that I love. And from time to time, I have to go back and remind myself. I want you to write it down. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Now, let me set that up. The disciples were coming to Jesus. And they were relinquishing, giving up everything, picking up their cross, following Jesus. And they began to ask some questions. Okay, Jesus, we're going to follow you, but where are we going to live? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? And I mean, these are good questions. 
I mean, these were questions that I had when I come into the ministry. You know, I was not a young man. I was already in my 30s and had my wife, had my kids, and, you know, had a house in California. We sold, moved out here. Everybody in our family thought we were crazy. You have to make sure it's of God. So in Matthew 6, Jesus tells his disciples after their concerns, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. All these things will be added unto you. We have to put Christ first. So if the young widows were coming and a man came into their life, make sure it is of the Lord. Secondly, make sure that God has ordained this. Now, there's a beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with a non-believer. You don't know how many times I've asked, uh, you know, one or, or both of them, is he a Christian? Well, you know, it's close. Well, what do you mean he's, it's close? Is he a believer? Has, is he born again to the Holy Spirit? Well, you know, he was baptized. Already I know they're unequally yoked. We need to look at the heart. Now, verse 13, he continues. He goes, and besides, they learn to be idle. These are these young widows. They learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house. And not only idle, but they become gossips. They become busybodies, saying things which they ought not to say. So be careful. The young widow, if you become idle. You know, what a contrast, because we spoke about the widows that were... Be that had become prayer warriors. Instead of these widows becoming prayer warriors, they became idle. And they began to go house to house. And they began to be talebearers, gossipers, busybodies. And then he goes on. Look at verse 14. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary, to speak reproachfully. Here's Paul's counsel to the younger widows. To marry. Go ahead and get married then. Have children. Manage the home. Don't give the enemy, listen, an opportunity to speak reproachfully, to speak slander. And he had already mentioned in verse 13. Because you can so easily become gossipers, busybodies. And now slanderers. And so there's a balance. And Paul was not against marriage, but make sure it's of the Lord. Look at verse 15. And obviously Paul saw this in the church. For some have already turned aside and are following Satan. Obviously there were some that backslid, some of these widows. And have fallen away, listen, from the faith. Followed, going back to Egypt, as they said, or going back to Babylon. When somebody says they're back in Babylon, somebody says they're back in Egypt, that means they're going back to the world. A couple years back, there was a young man that was coming to our church. He finished and graduated from NMSU, got his degree, and then he pursued his career, and it took him from here to another state. And anyway, he got involved in work and everything. Everything was great. And so 
I finally got to meet him. I hadn't seen him for a while. And I says to him, how you doing? And the first words that came out of his, mind, his mouth, because he sat under teachings here, he bowed his head and he says, Bob, Pastor Bob, I've gone back to Babylon. And I go, man, you know better than that. You know better than that. He was weeping. He wasn't being sarcastic or prideful. He knew what he did. Remember what we shared? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his own soul? I said, man, get back to the Lord. Get back to God. You've tasted of the Lord. The psalmist says, tasted the Lord, for he is good. Why would you want to go back? For some have already turned aside after Satan. Now, God never leaves us, but we leave him. Two verses. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. And then it's picked up back in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. These are the words of God. Old Testament, New Testament. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise, church. Now, we all go through our little battles. I mean, I've been in ministry for a long time. Been a Christian for a long time. But there's times and there's days and there's hours when you swear God's left you. He's not there. He's not listening to you. He's abandoned you. Not so. That's the trick of the enemy. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the promise of God. But Lord, I don't feel you. The Bible says we don't walk by feelings. We walk by faith. We walk by faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so many times we want, oh, Lord, just show us. Show me a sign. Show me, you know, an earthquake, a, a thunder strike. Show me something, Lord. Appear, an angel appeared to me at night. You'd, you'd probably die if that happened to you. Remember this. You're a Christian. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But we get into the appetites of the world again. That young man was doing great while he was here, while he was at the university. Graduation comes, and he goes back into the world. Gets a good job, goes back into the world. It didn't happen overnight. It, it, slowly, the deception, the deception. Let's conclude our study now in verse 16. If any believing man or believing woman has widows, let them relieve, relieve them and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really, truly widows. It goes back to the reality. So the Christians that have relatives, that have, you know, grandchildren, that have still children, then take care of the elderly. Take care of the widows. Take care of mom and dad. You know, I thank the Lord that none of our parents have been placed in a home. And I know, listen, please don't get convicted because sometimes it's necessity. Sometimes they're, they're, physically you can't do it. And so they need to be placed in 24-7 watch, obviously. But, I mean, be careful when you're waiting. Well, you're 65 tomorrow, Dad. See you later. That's not the way it works. I'm going to read something to you that was so beautiful. I took it out of one, one of my commentaries. 
there is a chapel in Via Albani in Rome, and it has a plaque that reads, To the good Regina. It's from her daughter who has erected this memorial. And this is what the plaque reads. The good Regina, the widowed mother, who was a widow for 60 years and never burdened the church, and she was the wife of one husband, and I like this on the plaque. She lived 80 years, 5 months, 26 days. Oh, that's honoring this widow. What a beautiful picture. And so Paul was encouraging young Timothy. He was encouraging uh, the church at Ephesus. Take care of and honor the widows. You know, my wife and I have raised the four girls, and uh, our youngest one is 23, going to be 24. And so I told her one day, I says, Amber, mom and I are getting up in age. You know, you're the last one. You're going to have to take care of us. She says, Dad, I'll take care of you. He says, before I leave to work in the morning, I'm going to duct tape you to your chair. <laughs> and then when I get back home, I'll take the duct tape off. And then I'll take care of you. I go, you do that, and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> she was kidding. She was kidding. But, man, the opportunities we have to take care of our parents. Man, I tell you what, my mom, she catered to my dad. My mother-in-law, she catered to my father-in-law in their last days. And I can still remember the calls. Pray, it's time for dad to go home. And so we take care of him as long as we can. That's the beauty. That's what Paul's saying. Honor the old. Don't kick them around. Don't put them off to the side. Honor them. Love them into the kingdom of God. Let's all stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for just Paul's encouragement through the word. Oh, how he was so staunch in this area of the responsibility of the Christian to take care of the elderly, not to rebuke them, but to show respect and, and to be humble for them to encourage them, feed them, clothe them, house them. And yet, Lord, we also know that in some cases it's not possible. But, Lord, help us. Help us, Lord. Help us to care. As we love you, Lord, and we're supposed to love our neighbor, well, what about our parents and our grandparents? And what about the elderly, Lord? And I thank you for the elderly and our church, Lord. Bless them. Anoint them, Lord. And you see, we cannot do this unless we know Christ. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to give you that opportunity. Maybe you're here this morning, and you've never given your life to Jesus. I'm not asking you to join Calvary Chapel. I'm not asking you, you know, to do it for Pastor Bob or Pastor Jeff or Pastor Jay. This is a relationship between you and God. If you don't know Christ and you're not sure, or if you're positive you don't know Christ, then what an opportunity. I'm not going to ask you to come up, but right there from where you're at, if you raise your hand, I will say a simple prayer of faith with you this morning. Young or old, middle-aged, it doesn't matter. If you need Jesus this morning, 
please raise your hand real quick and I'll say a simple prayer. I see your hand way in the back. I see your hand over here in the back also. I see your hand over there in the cry room. Anybody else? Don't leave here without Jesus. Praise the Lord. Then let's pray for these beautiful hands that went up and uh, that God would just touch them right now. Father, you saw the hands, but most of all, you see the hearts of these, your servants, Lord. Lord, they don't know you or they're not sure. Maybe they've been in the church before, but they're not truly born again of the Holy Spirit. Right now, Lord, as they lift their hand to you, as they open their heart to you, Lord, forgive them of all their sins, past, present, and future. Lord, wash them in your precious blood right now. Make their sins as white as snow, the Bible says. Lord, fill them with your Holy Spirit. Give them a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Give them a hunger and a thirst for your word. And Lord, the rest of us, bless us, Lord. Cause us to be those Christians that are going to reach out to the elderly, and especially our own families, Lord. Father, bless your people as they've come. Bless the offerings this morning. As you've given to us, Lord, we give back a portion. And so we're so grateful, Lord. Lord, bless the Klein Park outreach that's coming upon us this week. Bless all those that are traveling from Southern California, those that are coming from Tucson, those that are coming from the surrounding areas here in southern New Mexico. Bless it, Lord. And Lord, open up the hearts of those that are going to come to Klein Park. And Father, we just thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, we pray. And we all agree by saying amen.